So open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter 1. If you're using the Bible that's provided for you right there in the pew rack, you can find this on page 1200. We are here in a brief series. I'll preach this Sunday, and I'll preach again next Sunday, asking some basic questions about our identity. Who am I? Where am I headed? What am I here for? What hope do I have? It's a series built around this theological truth of our union with Christ, that we are found in Christ. When we put our trust in him, we belong to him, we are identified with him, we are saved by him. We turn this morning to 1 Peter, as the apostle writes to a church to give them living hope, a church in the midst of trial and tribulation, a, a church that is suffering and persecuted. But he tells them that they can have hope that they must hope. He commands them to hope because they have grace that will be revealed at the return of Christ. And so he calls them to action. We begin the reading in 1 Peter 1. I'll begin at verse 13 with the word therefore. And so we have to ask, why is it there? What was he previously speaking about? Peter is talking about how the gospel, salvation, the fact that God rescues sinners is so marvelous that angels who need no rescue are intrigued and go searching the scriptures to to understand the, the glories of both the sufferings of Christ and his power on display. And so Peter then calls the church to action. Listen as I read the word of God. I'll read 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 through 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we come with hearts that are heavy, praying for friends and neighbors who have suffered. We come having seen headlines that remind us of great sorrow and tragedy. And Lord, we pray for your comfort and blessing. In this weekend in which we celebrate as a country Memorial Day, we're reminded of those who who sacrificed their lives that we might gain freedom. Lord, we see in the teaching of Jesus to his disciples that this is the love to which we are each called, to be willing to lay down our lives for those that we love. And Lord, in the ministry of Jesus, we see the great fulfillment of our hope, our salvation that Jesus, your Son, our Savior, gave his life for us. So, Father in heaven, for those of us that feel overwhelmed and filled with sorrow, let us find hope today in your word. Lord, for those that listen without a saving understanding of Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that the gospel, as we have read it, as we have sung it together, as we have heard it announced to us in the readings from Scripture, Lord, that this gospel would be clear that those who don't yet believe would put their trust in Jesus Christ. So, Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
where do we even begin? In a week filled with horrific headlines, where should we start? We are overwhelmed by violence against innocent children in their school classrooms, on the streets of our nearby cities. We see aggression on the world stage as a sovereign nation is bombed and its civilians slaughtered, with terrorist insurgency around the world. We read this week of investigations and reports of sexual abuse in our churches. We feel overwhelmed. Where do we even begin to hope for change? In these kinds of circumstances, our ignorance is often exposed. What should I, what should I even do to start? I, I fear throwing my energies into failed solutions. But when we feel helpless, we often end up in either apathy or anger. We throw up our hands in apathy and say, I, I, I can't change anything. Or we clench our fists in anger and say, nothing ever changes. We can fail to act because the problems seem too big. And so we do nothing. And nothing happens. Unsurprisingly, I won't attempt to solve all of the problems of your week with one sermon. Yes, there are steps we can take when we gather in worship, when we gather to pray together. We have opportunities as neighbors and citizens to serve those around us. There are policies that we must implement in church to expose abuse and to serve those who have been harmed. Admittedly, my goal this morning is smaller than global transformation. Well, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not any smaller than that. The, the same inaction, the ignorance that plagues us on the larger scale still lurks in our private lives as well. If we held up a mirror to our lives, if we attempted to write headlines to describe what was happening in our own lives, we would, we would quickly feel overwhelmed by our personal lives, our relationships. We might feel stuck, feel crushed spiritually, and so we end up doing nothing. We are ignorant to our own failures, so we fail to act. The Apostle Peter is writing to a church that lives within an empire, an evil empire. Lives in a world where everything seems to point away from the purposes of God. He, he writes to a church that knows what it is to suffer because of the gospel. And yet he calls believers to be prepared for action. He calls believers to be hopeful. He, he demands that we as believers pursue holiness. And so we won't solve every problem today. But maybe we can start with ourselves and see where our hope really lies. Because Peter expects action. He, he expects believers to act. Look, look back at verse 13. He says, Therefore, 
Prepare your minds for action. Prepare yourself. Get ready. Change the way you're thinking. Be prepared for action. Now, this doctrine of our union with Christ, that we have been united to Christ, it can, it can feel like a passive doctrine, the kind of thing where we just, we do nothing. Because what is, what is expected of us in the gospel? That we throw ourselves upon the mercy of Christ. That we abide in Christ. That we remain in the vine. That we dwell with Christ. It, it might sound like we could summarize the doctrine by saying, let go and let God. Let go and just let God take care of it. Now, of course, there are times in our lives that we are, we are commanded to let go. To let go of the anger which controls our hearts. To let go of our sin and our, our resentment. To, to let go of the sin which marked our lives in the past. Of course, there are times that we are, we are told to let go. But there's a danger if, the, if we were to summarize the doctrine of Christ by saying, just let go and let God. It's just put your feet up and just float along through life. Because that misunderstands what's happening here. Yes, our first response when you come to trust in Christ is to throw yourself upon the mercy, to fall into the arms of Jesus, to abide with him, to dwell with him. But Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. You're to be ready. Now, my dad, is, when, when he was trying to wrangle us as kids to get us moving, he would, he would use his, his old drill sergeant voice, and he would say, stand by to prepare to get ready to move out. Because, well, he knew that, well, we were just kids, not soldiers, so he threw a bunch of commands that, that really made the action so far down the road that you weren't really going anywhere. Stand by to prepare to get ready to finally move out. And it was always the same phrase, stand by to prepare to get ready to move out, such that we as kids would sort of say it with him. And it was his, his way of, of gently sort of rousing us to like, put on your shoes, get out the door, and get in the car. But I think many of us sort of live so far behind those commands, stand by to prepare to get ready to move out. Then we're not ready for anything. I mean, like, wait, I still have to go back up to my room and get stuff? I don't have socks on. I, what am I supposed to put my shoes on? I don't know where any of my stuff is. We're still, we're still completely lost. That like, We can't even get ourselves out to the car. But spiritually, what, what Peter is saying, prepare your minds for action. You are there on the starting line. We, we hear the, on your marks, get set. You are about to hear, go. You should be ready. Actually, the language that Peter uses, he says, gird your minds, using that Old Testament language of girding up the, your, your loins or, or girding up your robes, because people in the ancient Near East would have worn, men, both men and women, long flowing clothing to keep cool in the hot climate, which is, which is great if you're browsing the marketplace or, or taking care of an easy task or, or lounging at a meal. But having long flowing robes, a long tunic, is trouble when you've got to move quickly. I mean, I, it, it, when you see me wear a, a pulpit robe, I can barely make it up the stairs, let alone move anywhere quickly. 
And so the, the language is girded up. Grab the, the hems of these long garments, wrap them around, tuck them into your belt, tie them off so that you've sort of made shorts for yourself. Your legs are free. You're ready for work. In the fields, you're ready for battle on the battlefield. You're ready to go. Gird up and get ready. You, you sort of look ridiculous doing it, but you're ready to go. Gird up your minds for action. The, the language here of, of girding up is, the, is the, the language that's used frequently in Scripture. It's used connected with the Old Testament Passover. In, in the book of Exodus, God rescues his people. He takes, he takes Pharaoh through a battle in which we know the outcome is certain. God, Yahweh, will gain victory over evil King Pharaoh. But, but when God sends the judgments upon Egypt, Pharaoh is, is unable to stop anything that, that, that happens, but he refuses to let God's people go. And so finally, God brings a warning of a tenth and final plague against Egypt, a plague which is horrible in that it will bring the death of the firstborn. But God provides a, a way out for the people of Israel. They are to take a lamb and sacrifice it in the place of the son who would die. They take a, a lamb and sacrifice the lamb. They take the blood from the lamb and they, they spread it on the, the doorframe of the house so that God himself will pass over on the night of judgment and not bring death because death has already come to the lamb. In the meal in which they then gather around the table, they eat this sacrificed lamb. But they're given instructions of how they should eat it. In, in Exodus 12, this is, the, this is the instruction that they are given. This is how you are to eat the Passover meal. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. God has come to rescue you, so get ready to move. Gird up your minds, Peter is saying, like the people were meant to be ready to move on the night of the Passover, because what follows the Passover is the rescue of the Exodus. And so you and I, having seen the rescue of God, first Peter uses language not only here of, of girding, of being prepared like the, the, they were at the Passover meal, but, but he calls later in chapter 1, Jesus the lamb without blemish or defect. In essence, Jesus is our Passover lamb. And so because God has rescued you, because you have trusted in him, now get ready to go. And we need to be ready for action because we see the danger lurking in our own lives. Peter gives the command to the, the believers back in 1 Peter 1. Again, verse 13, he says, Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Control yourself. Be in control of your own desires. Not self-indulgent, but self-controlled. Stop seeking your wealth in power or pleasure. Stop seeking your significance even in your wealth. The desires here in verse 13, the desires of verse 14, the evil desires, sometimes speak about sexual desires and the distortions in our hearts there, but, but it speaks more broadly of, of using the things of this world as a goal rather than a means to glorify God. And so the command is, is to 
is to no longer conform to the evil desires, to, to be self-controlled. Because if you are not the master of your passions, then your passions will master you. If you do not control yourself, then you will be controlled by the things that you, will, you desire. So you and I need to be ready for action because we know what lurks within us. Verse 14, these evil desires, our own ignorance. And then Peter gives a, a clear command. It's really the controlling command of this passage. Yes, the commands to, to gird up your minds, to be prepared, to be self-controlled, those come as commands. But the, the controlling command grammatically in this sentence is, is there in verse 13, in this section, set your hope fully on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's a command. It's, it's in the imperative. It's a demand that you and I hope completely, entirely on grace. Grace that is given to us as a gift from God. Now we understand in 1 Peter, hope as a noun, hope as something we hold on to, hope as something that's given to us. We see back in, in verse 3 of chapter 1, if you have your Bible still in front of you, 1 Peter 1 verse 3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The, the chapter that we're in will, 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 will again bring back hope as an object for us. We're, we're told in verse 21 that that. Through, through God, we, through Christ, we believe in God who raised Christ from the dead and glorified him. This is verse 21. So your faith and hope are in God. Hope is the controlling theme of the chapter. And, and here, what Peter does is he, is he takes it and he uses it as a verb. He tells us hope. It's a command. It's a demanded of us. Hope fully have total hope. One, one commentator says this is the imperative of hope. It's given to us as a command in its imperative form. Hope completely, totally, fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Grace which is given to us. Grace, the undeserved favor of God. God's blessing that is given to us. And of course, in in. First Peter, as in the rest of the New Testament, grace is a present experience, a gift that we have right now when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. That we have a living hope right now, we read in verse 3. Because Jesus is the one who died, First Peter 1 verse 19, that it's with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, that we have been redeemed. We have grace in the present. Right now, in this moment, a living hope. But the emphasis here in verse 13 is not on the hope which you have now. Where is it? Look again at verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when? When Jesus Christ is revealed. See, and this is why you and I when we read the headlines, yes, we might feel overwhelmed. We might feel despair. We might feel even a, a righteous anger at injustice that takes place in the world at large. And, and, and part of why we feel so overwhelmed is, is we have news constantly from everywhere. News that comes at us so quickly, it, it doesn't even always get the story right. 
The headlines don't even tell us the truth. But here's why you and I don't become hopeless. It's not the last headline to be written. The worst news you read this week isn't the the final headline to be given. Now, I can't tell you that the headlines this week won't be worse. They very well could be. Either because it, it moves the tragedies from thousands of miles away into our own neighborhoods. When the list of names that we read are not, not people we've never met, but people we know and love. Yes, this week's headlines might, might be even worse. But why can you and I have hope? Because we have hope, we have set our hope on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. The big headlines you and I will get to see, Jesus returns. Jesus wins. Victory is secured because Jesus will come again in the fullness of his glory. The Son of God here in our midst, the one who understands our suffering and pain. When we pray the the Lord's Prayer, it's, it's an act of bold defiance against the kingdoms of this world because the king is coming again. We are praying for the day when the will of God is done on earth exactly as it is in heaven because heaven and earth will will be under the full and complete and total control of Jesus when God himself will take his hand and wipe away every tear from our eyes. So you and I are without hope. We are given the command, the imperative that we must place our hope. We must hope fully on Jesus Christ. And so that's why why Peter can then say, get ready, be ready to act because you have hope that is coming, and so live holy lives right now. He doesn't tell you to to just, you know, let go and let God and see where, you know, see where life takes you. No, it's a command. He tells us, as obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had. He says, verse 15, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. Verse 16 repeats the command, but with now a a quotation from the Old Testament. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. The call here is to be holy in everything that we do, in every part of our lives. It's not merely holiness to sort of be set apart for God, to pursue moral purity. It's not holiness only in our religious observance. And and really, many religious systems, even today, that's all that's expected of you. When you show up and you go through the rituals, as long as you perform them in the right way and with the right attitude, then it doesn't matter what you do the rest of the week. Actually, that's the whole point of the religious system is so you can do whatever you want the rest of the week and you just come and you show up and you be holy when holiness is demanded and we're going to limit holiness only to religious observance. But the command here comes from the book of Leviticus, the quotation of be holy because I am holy. Your, your footnotes in your Bible might, might show you that it's, it's actually peppered throughout Leviticus, but we see it most directly in Leviticus 19. And yes, the the Old Testament gives us commands for how we are to approach God when we are going through the religious rituals. So how should you bring the lamb to the temple? 
How should you act when you show up at the tabernacle? Yes, there are commands about religious systems, and holiness is demanded there, but holiness in the book of Leviticus is demanded in every part of your life. You are meant to be holy. Why? Not just to sort of create a little bit of space in your life that you can enter into a, a, a limited relationship with God. You are meant to be holy because the God who made you, who, who controls the universe, he himself is holy. This is what Leviticus 19 tells us. Yahweh said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, Yahweh your God, am holy. We are called to be holy because God is holy. The, the language here in Leviticus is the language of, of the covenant, that God has entered into relationship. He has revealed his covenant name, Yahweh, to his people. He says, you must be holy because you're in relationship with me or you are meant to be set apart for my purposes and my glory. And while, while Peter shortens the quotation and removes the covenant name of God, he, he doesn't move the relation, remove the relationship. Actually, he's even more explicit because in verse 14, he called us obedient children. You are a child of God. You are meant to be an obedient child of God. You are meant to be holy because God, your Father, is holy. One commentator actually says that, that little description, obedient children, well, that really could be a summary of the Christian life. That's what it is to be a, a true believer. You're an obedient child. Your, your obedience doesn't make you a child, but because you are a child, you're meant to reflect your loving Father's purposes. God lovingly entered into relationship with us. While we were still sinners, we were rescued. But because we are God's children, we are meant to be holy in everything. Not conformed to our evil desires, but morally pure and upright. Set apart for the Lord for his glory. It means there aren't parts of your life where, where you can say, oh no, on the outside, I, I can make myself look holy, but I'm going to keep this for myself. I mean, you, you don't get to see it. This is mine. I do what I want here in this part of my life. No. Peter says, just as God who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. In, your, in the classroom as you take a test. In your workplace as you give credit to your coworkers as you report your income to the government as you care for your neighbor as you eat your meals in everything you do you are called to be holy and this pursuit of holiness then can can destroy our apathy where we just say i don't even know what to do well start closest to home start with your own heart. Start with the ways in which God would want to change you. Where, where your anger is righteous, then pursue it. Pursue justice. Where your anger is sinful, then repent of your sin. But grace is coming. It will be fully revealed at the, at the return of Christ, which means you can do something right now. Because yes, this week's headlines may be worse, but the headlines that will one day be written will be so much better. You have hope because you have a Savior who is coming 
Again, when you are tempted to throw up your hands in despair, instead prepare yourself for action. Gird up your mind for action. Be holy in everything you do. And the grace of God then begins to unravel our anger where we can, where we can determine, uh, yes, I want to pursue justice, but, but without only laying blame on everyone else. I have hope that things will change because grace is going to be revealed when Jesus comes. That's my hope, is that I'm placing my hope fully on the grace that will be given to me when Jesus Christ is revealed, when everything will be restored for the glory of God. And so set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you. It's a command. It's not optional. Hope isn't, it's not a naive optimism of, well, everything will be fine. No, tomorrow it might be terrible. But I know there is one coming who will make right all that has gone wrong, that everything terrible that has happened will be used for my good and his glory. The imperative of hope demands that I actually hope, that I really, I really trust, not, not as a slogan, not as an empty, an empty sort of cross my fingers and, and wish that it might come true. No, I really hope. Look at what God has done for you. The perfect Lamb of God, slain for you. And put your trust in what God will do for you. Jesus will be revealed. Grace will be given to you. Because Jesus is coming again. And so hope. I mean, this week you may feel like your voice has just become a, a whisper. And so let the words of Peter ring out as a shout, the imperative of hope. Hope fully on the grace that will be given to you. Hope Jesus is coming again. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, where we are tempted toward despair, let us find real hope in Jesus and his work on our behalf. Lord, don't let that become an excuse for our inaction, but let us gird up our minds that we might be ready to serve and to love, that we might follow the new command which has been given to us by Christ, that we will be ready to lay down our lives. Lord, for those who listen today and see with clarity the evil and the pain in this world and yet don't yet have hope, Lord, give it to them now that by faith they might trust and receive the grace which is given to us through Jesus. Lord, as we pursue your purposes and your kingdom, let us do so as obedient children, children that are loved by you, rescued by you, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Give us hope today. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.